Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more, back at the beginning on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast is going to be to examine the climax, the falling action, the resolution of the endings to each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I happen to personally subjectively like the ending. And today's podcast will focus on the ending of the Stephen King classic, Misery. Okay, guys, I'm going to get right into it. Last week, I um, gave a quarantine corona recommendation of a series of books and uh, movies slash TV for everyone to catch up on. And what I'm going to do is is head back into the, the endings of the works of Stephen King. I had taken basically a month-long break from June to July to uh i just I, I wasn't in the zone i i just i i couldn't focus where i needed to focus and i, I kind of want to get back to it um i don't want to leave anyone in in the lurch so i'm just gonna go right into my thoughts on the ending of of misery and in order for me to talk about the ending of misery i'm just going to read the the wikipedia uh summary so that we have some context paul sheldon the author of the best-selling series of Victorian-era romance novels featuring the character Misery Chastain has finished the series' final installment in which Misery is killed off. As Paul celebrates the completion of the manuscript for his new crime novel Fast Cars, he is caught in a snowstorm in a remote section of Colorado, causing him to crash into a snowbank. He awakens to find that he has been rescued by Annie Wilkes, a former nurse living nearby. Annie is an avid reader of Paul's Misery series proclaiming herself to be Paul's number one fan. She refuses to take Paul to the hospital, despite his having two severely broken legs, nursing Paul herself back using her stockpiled food and an illicit stash of codeine-based painkillers, to which Paul quickly becomes addicted. Paul soon assesses that Annie is mentally unstable. She is prone to trailing off into catatonic episodes and have bouts of unreasonable rage, implying that she suffers from schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder as well as bipolar spectrum disorder. When Annie learns of Misery's death in the book, she leaves Paul alone in her house for over two days, depriving him of food, water, and painkillers. Upon her return, she forces a weakened Paul to burn the manuscript for Fast Cars, which she hoped would launch his post-Misery career, and presents him with an antique royal typewriter. For the purpose of writing a new Misery novel that will bring the character back from the dead, biding his time, Paul begins his new book, Misery's Return, and allows Annie to read it and fill in the missing ends as he writes. He manages to escape his room in a wheelchair on several different occasions, searching for more painkillers and exploring the house. He discovers a scrapbook full of newspaper clippings, suggesting that she is a serial killer who has murdered over 30 people, including a family residing in the same apartment building as hers, her father, a nursing school roommate, elderly and fatally injured patients, a hitchhiker, newborns, the latter resulting in her being tried but acquitted due to insufficient evidence, Meanwhile, Annie grows increasingly depressive and reveals that she knows about Paul leaving his room. She punishes him by cutting off his foot with an axe and cauterizing his ankle with a blowtorch. 
Later, after Paul complains that the typewriter's T and E keys have broken and refuses to tell Annie how the novel ends before he's written it, she cuts off his thumb with an electric knife. Colorado State Trooper Dwayne Kushner eventually arrives at Annie's house in search of Paul. When Paul attempts to alert him, Annie murders Kushner by running him over with her riding lawnmower and decides that she will shoot both Paul and herself after the novel is finished. While she disposes of the body, Paul manages to steal a can of lighter fluid, which he uses to light the finished manuscript on fire. As Annie attempts to save it, he beats her with the typewriter and they engage in a violent struggle. Paul is finally able to alert the police who have arrived in search of the dead officer Kushner. Annie is eventually found dead from her injuries in the barn, apparently on her way to murder Paul with a chainsaw. Paul reveals that he had burned the decoy copy of the manuscript and the real one is unharmed. Returning home to New York, Paul submits Misery's Return to his publisher, which is set to become an international bestseller. Paul suffers frequent nightmares about Annie and continues to have withdrawal from painkillers. He is also becoming an alcoholic with writer's block. Eventually, after his random encounter on the street, Paul gains inspiration to write a new story, weeping for both his shattered life and the joy that he is able to finally write again. Okay, so let's talk about the ending of, of Misery. So we'll, we're going to start with the climax, which be which is when the state trooper arrives at the house. Paul sees this as his shot at escape, um, and he murders the state trooper. Um, so this is um, another example of Paul trying to escape, um, and this is where things really spiral out of control. The falling action is Paul and Annie having their final battle. The police arrive, discover Annie's dead body, and the resolution is Paul's post-Annie life in New York. And I apologize, guys. This this is going to be very short because, um, as as we'll see, um, I'm simply asking a series of questions, um, and the the answer um, is is pretty clear. Um, that this is, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it. Yeah, this is a good ending, and let's talk very briefly about why. And we have to ask ourselves is, for the criteria for a good ending, does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, and themes from the book? And I would say yes. Um, Paul is introduced to us as a victim as a um, prisoner, he is drugged up, he is physically abused, physically mutilated, mentally abused, um, emotionally abused. Throughout the novel, he attempts escape, um, he is thwarted, he is punished, and ultimately he is able to reclaim his independence and his life um, by vanquishing the, the villain um, the, the monstrous, uh, um, you know, warden that has been watching over him and imprisoning him, Annie. So I would say, yes, it is a, a, um, definitely it's, it's a character driven, uh, thriller horror. And if we don't feel for the characters, if we are not invested in the characters, it falls flat. Um, we are completely engrossed and the turmoil and conflict that uh, Paul has found himself in. We root for him to escape. It is thrilling. It is harrowing because of the work that King did by, by um, infusing both of these characters um, with, with so much dimension that, yes, in the end, 
it is consistent with what he had worked with with the with these two characters. He had put Paul through the absolute ringer. He established Annie as you know, fully human, but, you know, there are times with his descriptions that she is a force of nature. I, I believe that he referred to her as a totem um, that Paul had had to conquer. And, um, you know, he is completely presented as the underdog. Um, you know, her, her physicality, Annie's physicality is is fully on display. You know, she is a, you know, a very human monster, within the pantheon of king villains but with the inhumanity that she um perpetrates on paul and the just the, the cold um you know monstrosity um and horror that she is able to inflict on him with the drugging him getting him addicted cutting off of his thumb um obviously that you know um, amputating the, his, his foot. Um, it, it, it's all, it's all of the most horrific things any of his, his characters, his villains has ever wrought upon another one of his characters. And for that character to be human and not a shape-shifting clown or a quasi-immortal or a soul-stealing imp, it, it, it really speaks to the power of that character. Um, and so to have these two characters be so firmly entrenched within this story and and have them on this collision course to, to one final conflict, yes. I mean, yes, the, the, the conclusion is very character-based and consistent with the work that he had put in um, leading up to the conclusion. So yes, criteria for a good ending from a character standpoint, I, I think that it, it works. Does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? Yes, and I touched upon that a little bit. So, Paul, um, it's from a situational standpoint, from a plot standpoint, we have a character, we have an author who is injured in a car crash, nursed to health while simultaneously um, being uh, kept vulnerable. Um, and in an unhealthy situation, um, in a dangerous and captive situation um, throughout the entirety of the book, um, it, it all has to conclude somehow whether this character um, escapes captivity or dies within captivity or remains a captive. Um, so yes, the, the plot is wrapped up. I touched upon it within the, the characters because the, the, the plot is the concept here is is so simple um which isn't it's it's not a um a, a criticism it's it's actually a strength of the novel it's a very simple plot that really weaves in the conflict the characters and the setting into into really one thing um so that in really discussing one you're you're kind of discussing all so yes the plot is wrapped up and once the plot is wrapped up, obviously the, the characters and the conflict and the theme is wrapped up as well. Um, but yes, this is a character that needs to get out. The character gets out. It does not feel forced. It does not feel unrealistic. It feels very true um, to the characters and to the conflict um, that was established. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? Yes, absolutely. Burning the manuscript, beating Annie in the head with a typewriter 
um, is definitely the author reclaiming control of his artistry that had been denied of him throughout the entirety of the novel. He is no longer held prisoner, um, both literally and metaphorically, um, by um, this obsessive fan that stood in for obsessive fans entirely. I'll talk about that a little bit more in um, another section. Um, so in terms of the themes, we have the obsessive fan and we also have addiction um, and his freedom. He, he is able to escape both. He is able to escape the, the toxic fandom. He's able to escape his uh, addiction, which is um, fully on display, not just from the um, from the physical escape, but in the, the epilogue, um, the, in, in the resolution. I should say that, yeah, the resolution when, um, you know, he, he starts weeping and crying. He is, he is completely freed spiritually and physically, and he's able to, to start over. The next question is, um, it, it doesn't go into really judging whether or not the ending is quote-unquote good, um, but it is something to consider. Um, it, it, it doesn't take away from a book, but it kind of does add to it. And that is, what is the most famous scene in the novel and does it appear in the conclusion of the story? So I, I would say that the most famous scene um, has a lot to do with the movie and it, it's different than it is in the movie. And that's the, the hobbling slash amputation scene. So I, I would say that that is when people think of misery, I think they tend to think of the movie. And I think that when people think of the movie, they tend to think of the sledgehammer scene. So um, kind of retroactively, if you work backwards from that, it that scene, it's the, the, the book version of that scene, which is not the sledgehammer, it's the axe and the blowtorch. Um, and uh, so I would say that that, is, that happens to be the most... Um, memorable famous scene of the book it does not take place in the conclusion but with that said I don't think that it takes away from the conclusion um, of, of the book it's just something that I think that we should you know discuss and are there other factors that we need to consider yeah um, th this is such an interesting book to discuss and I touched upon this in my review a few years back um, and I think that in the time since I reviewed the entirety of the book, the concept of toxic fandom has only gotten worse. Because I, I think that when I when I reviewed, um, when I reviewed uh, the book, I don't know if if Star Wars really had. Um, become what it has become. Not Star Wars so much as the fandom around um, Star Wars, which is occupies a massive space online, um, and it's it's exhausting to navigate. Um, social media ha has uh, really empowered toxic fan bases um, to a really gross degree. And, and even when they're not toxic, it's at the very least contentious and there's an entitlement. Um, at this day and age, everybody has an opinion. Everybody is right. Um, and I, what's worse about this is that everyone is entitled to having art catered to their whims and their needs. You know, think about the fact that, um, 
you know, Zack Snyder is is now going to be uh, making the Snyder Cut. You know, for years people have been clamoring for the Snyder Cut as if it's a thing that existed. And then, you know, the release, the Snyder Cut has has led way to um, it, it, it wound up creating a reality that hadn't existed prior to the hashtag. And w- which which is to say that there was a, this misbelief that this this thing existed. They, there was such demand for it, um, and then now that thing is going to be made that hadn't existed. And, you know, I think that, you know, I, I'm happy for Zack Snyder, who had to exit the project um, under truly awful, terrible circumstances. So I think that this is, you know, very cathartic for him. I don't agree with his vision of these characters, um, but it's, it's, you know, good for the man, you know, who is is going to be able to finish this trilogy of sorts that he started. So I'm I'm happy for him and, and the cast seems really into it and you know they all seem to believe in in Zach and that's great. It's great stuff. Again, I said that I don't agree with this particular interpretation of the characters. My concern really um with the the Snyder cut so to speak has less to do with that interpretation um as it has to do with a component of fandom that was just nasty just nasty about it. Um, some people just happen to like the Snyderverse, which is cool. But some people are just, like I said, just really, really gross about it um, and just pure, you know, just very contentious about it. Star Wars, obviously, um, uh, you know, controversy and criticism within the world of Star Wars isn't anything new you know, dating back to Return of the Jedi, um, following up Empire Strikes Back, um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, criticism around Ewoks for sure, (laughs) but people generally were still happy. We started seeing a lot more criticism with the prequels, um, and, and that's when people really started showing their displeasure of, of Star Wars, um, which, really grew once Disney acquired the the, the rights to Star Wars. And um, then there was a, a contingent of people that are just so adamant against Disney Star Wars um, who had, uh, you know, really embraced the um, expanded universe, which no longer existed. And their vocalization around that displeasure kind of got nasty. Um, there was criticism, you know, towards The Force Awakens um, for it being derivative, but that's valid and that doesn't really harm anyone. But then The Last Jedi occurred and that's when things got awful, um, where Kelly Marie Tran um, was, you know, verbally and personally attacked um, in, in just completely unacceptable ways. Um, and the, and that's just one component. And then there's an entitlement to the characters where this, you know, where the way that Luke Skywalker is depicted, um, the, the, the way that the Star Wars universe was presented, um, that just got it, it, it's people weren't responding to the movie as art, but as more along the lines of a toy that they, had held in their hands for their entire lives and refused to um, play, let any let anyone else play with that toy. Um, 
So we, we're, we're seeing a lot of it there. We're seeing it currently, spoiler alert, for The Last of Us 2, honestly, spoiler alert. Um, the characters depicted within The Last of Us 2 uh, run afoul to what we want of those characters. Um, the Ellie and Joel relationship in The Last of Us makes that game a singular gaming experience, the likes of which I've never had before. Um, I, 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 we, if you talk to most people about The Last of Us, it, 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 it's a high bar video gaming experience. It's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's, it's harrowing. Um, and if it weren't for how we felt about the Last of Us. The Last of Us 2 could not be as effective as it is. I finished it um, last weekend, and it's incredible. It is, it, it puts you through the ringer by design. Um, and it just goes back to the intent of art. Um, you're not supposed to always like it. You're not supposed to always enjoy it. Um, spoiler alert for the Dark Tower series. You're not supposed to quote-unquote like the ending or the last book. Um, you're supposed to feel put through the ringer um, and you're supposed to feel put through the ringer with the last of us too. But because there are people out there that don't believe in that. And because we have the platform to vocalize our displeasure at all times without necessarily thinking that through without thinking through the reasons why we feel that displeasure in the first place and thinking through the reasons uh, um, about whether or not vocalizing our displeasure is the right thing to do things get awful. So the actress that plays Abby in uh, The Last of Us 2 is being attacked. Um, so I, all of this is just a, a long way of saying toxic fandom has always existed. It existed when uh, Stephen King wrote Misery. Annie Wilkes very much is a stand-in for toxic fandom. Um, and I would say that in the last few years, it's gotten worse, if not definitely it's not gotten better um and every every day that goes on I, I think that it gets a little bit worse and gets a little bit worse so i think that that's something that we need to consider when when talking about misery um so with all of that said there's two questions i'm going to ask do i like the ending this is a subjective question um that has no bearing on whether or not um it is quote unquote good do i like the ending of misery yes i like the ending of misery um but most importantly, based on the questions that I had asked, is it a good ending? And I would say yes, objectively speaking, from a character standpoint, from a plot standpoint, from a conflict standpoint, from a thematic standpoint, yes, it is good. It is a good ending. Um, which brings our tallies. Let's look at our tallies. So, so far, I've discussed 15 endings. I like 15 of the endings. Um, and I... And, I, and I've argued that 14 of the 15 endings are good with the um, with Christine being the, the, um, the outlier there. Um, so, Misery. It's a good ending. Good book. Good ending. So, so far, I don't think that Stephen King is really worthy of the, the rap that he gets for the... Uh, um, the reputation he has for not being able to stick uh, uh, an ending. All right, guys, that's all I got for this week. Um, next week, I'll be back to discuss the Tommyknockers. So let's see. Let's see if the Tommyknockers, if the conclusion of that um, 
holds up. Okay, guys. So may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.